Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Clarinetist and Avery Fisher Prize winner Anthony McGill is the first African-American principal player in the New York Philharmonic's 180-year history. He feels a deep responsibility to use his singular presence on stage to educate and inspire a new generation of diverse musicians. It's a hope that kids have an opportunity to see someone that looks like them on the stage of a classical music hall by being a representative of what's possible but also giving them a chance to see, look, I can do anything I want. You're listening to Speaking Soundly, the podcast that explores the art of artistry. I'm your host, David Krauss, principal trumpet of the Metropolitan Opera. As a musician in New York City, I get to perform with some of the world's greatest artists every night. During each episode, you'll hear me speak with these inspiring performers as we lift the veil on talent to hear about their process and the personal journey that led them to the stage. We played together as members of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra, and I have to tell you, Anthony, I don't think I've ever been as awestruck by a colleague's performance as when I watched you perform at the inauguration of Barack Obama back in 2009. What was that experience like for you? It was uh, probably the highlight of my life, you know, just um, being asked to be a part of that moment that was so historic. And as a child, I would have never imagined that I would have been a part of something like that. You know, I might, as a clarinet player, as a musician, I might as well have been elected president. That's what, (laughs) that's, that's what it felt like. You know, everything we do as performers is just to have those moments on stage, quote unquote. But that was probably the greatest stage of my life. And it just meant so much to me, just as a American, as a black American, with Obama being elected and being there for that moment. I rewatched it recently, and the thing that struck me is that there's this part where you're playing and Obama turns around to watch you. He's listening and he's taken by the music and he's able to take a moment and reflect as you're performing. I mean, that's amazing. I think that's amazing. Yeah, it is It is so unreal, you know, to think about it. And I mean, it's just, just to set the stage for people that haven't seen the video. We were up on this like platform in front of the Capitol and all of the, the VIPs and the senators and the president-to-be is like all like behind us in this like bowl-like area. So we're like up on this stage that's higher than everyone by quite a bit. And it's it, it's crazy because we had the best seats for that inauguration. And were you present? Were you able to take in that moment? It was really hard to, it was hard to process because it was just happening and we were there for it. But it was almost like when someone goes into to shock from pain, but this was the opposite of that. This was like, I couldn't, I didn't feel anything because it was freezing cold, but also I, I was, the emotion of the moment, the meaning of the moment was like 
kind of overwhelming, I think. So um, I knew I would process it later. And I still don't think I've processed that moment. I'll be remembering that in years to come. You might say the other time you were in the middle of a historic event was the fact that you grew up in Chicago during the Bulls' three-peat championship runs. What was it like to be a kid in the 80s and 90s as a sports fan watching Michael Jordan and that dynasty? I think that actually, that like defined so many kids' childhood. I mean, they defined my childhood for sure. As a, as a kid from the South Side, the Bulls represented so much, but Michael Jordan and the Bulls together represented that it was possible to win, you know? It was possible to like achieve absolute greatness. Not to take that too far, but to take it too far. <laughs> like there were so many, I had, I was lucky because my brother and I had positive role models at home mm -hmm. and we were surrounded by, you know, some positive role models. But to see Michael Jordan and to kind of be a Chicagoan and in the back of our house, we grew up, you know, in a, you know, neighborhood with small brick bungalow homes. And in the backyard, my dad built this makeshift basketball hoop back there, like in front of our garage, we had garages and in between was the backyard. But we had this little patio in front of the backyard where you could have a grill or something, but he put up a basketball hoop. And that was just amazing because we felt like we were privileged because <laughs> we had a basketball hoop, even though we weren't, we didn't have very much money, but my parents made us feel like we did. And that was a part of my childhood was growing up, pretending to be Michael Jordan, pretending to be Walter Payton that helped develop self-esteem, frankly. So between the Michael Jordans of the world and, and others, I had positive role models around, um, that whole concept of you can really do amazing things with your life. The thing that anything is possible and like learning about how hard they worked and learning about their failures and seeing their interviews and seeing people talk about working really hard for success. This was something that was talked about a lot in our family. Well, you're from Chicago, I'm from New York, but both of us as very young kids ended up in the woods of Michigan to attend a music summer camp called Interlochen. Could you summarize what Interlochen is and what your experience was like there? Yeah, so they have all the arts, dance, music, drama, all of that stuff. And for eight weeks, I went away at age 11, which is kind of shocking to think about now because it was a sleepaway camp. And at the time it was eight weeks for kids, probably from age, what, seven, six? Um, and uh wow i'm just my daughter's almost six and i'm like that's crazy could you imagine shipping her off for eight no, weeks for eight yeah. weeks whoa <laughs> that's crazy to think about but um yeah so it was uh yeah it was a great place the, the most fun part was like becoming like an independent little person so i remember just kind of being alone for those weeks was that was wild did you find, like I did, that it was just amazing to be around kids your age that were also into music? Oh, yeah, completely. Uh, I think that was probably the coolest thing, is that I met tons of people in Chicago that played instruments and stuff, but to be living in a cabin with people and everyone's into the arts and music and all these things, 
it's this yeah, it was a special place for me yeah me too for sure my summer there made me realize if i didn't practice as much as everybody else i was going to fall way behind what was practicing like for you there and growing up did your parents insist that you practice or did you do it on your own well first of all my parents weren't those kind of folks so that wasn't a thing um they just wanted us to follow through with stuff so at some point, we like had like a little chart on the wall we had to check off and we practiced every day. So it was just like, yeah, you wanted to be consistent with it. But I think for the most part, pretty self-motivated because I liked, I liked playing. I think I discovered that I really, really enjoyed getting better at the clarinet. And early on, some of it, some of the stuff probably came easy to me. I don't, I didn't realize that at the time. Partly why it probably was enjoyable for me is that I liked to read when I was young and I enjoyed reading and I, I felt a similar kind of um, affinity for music and finding out what the story was, what the piece sounded like. And technically on the instrument, was there a point in your development where that practice was really starting to pay off, like things finally started to click? Yeah, there were a couple you know, big moments. And I look at it in kind of like repertoire. At 15, specifically, I started learning the Nielsen clarinet concerto, which was like one of the hardest pieces ever written for the clarinet. And that's when everything kind of like, I knew, okay, I'm putting in four or five hours a day practicing to learn this piece note by note, trying to do something I'd never done before. And to learn that piece, I had to take a humongous jump. When I think about it now, these were pieces that were way out of my league. But I don't know if I knew that at the time. I don't know if my teachers were just like, yeah, sure, whatever you want to do. Or they just recognized that I had this skill that needed to be nourished. But looking back on it, it seems those pieces in particular seem very odd for a young person to be playing. <laughs> right. It seems like from a very early age, you set forward on this path to becoming who you are today. Were there bumps in the road to your eventual success? Yeah, uh, there were lots of bumps in the road, probably too many to list, you know? They seem large at the time, but they're small, but they they mean something in your, on your journey to where you end up. But one of the first times I played at this competition, I had a memory slip and I was like kind of devastated, but I had practiced what I thought was a lot. And I was really sad about it. I was probably like 11 or something. And backstage, Michael Morgan, um, who was the conductor of the youth orchestra, who put, was putting on this competition, um, came back and talked to me and he talked to my mom and he told us that the result of the thing doesn't really matter because I was playing music. I was playing musically like a musician. And I remembered that. I remember that to this day that the pursuit of perfection or what we think of perfection isn't the thing that is the most valued. It is how you express yourself on your instrument. And so I've always remembered that. That was a huge kind of fail. I didn't win the thing. I don't know if I even got an honorable mention. And so there were many competitions like that. That wisdom made an impact on you at 11? Because that would have destroyed me at age 11, <laughs> but, but that brought you comfort to know, uh, I mean, that's pretty mature. I don't know. I don't know if it brought me comfort, <laughs> but, and I think I was very upset still, but I, I do remember it. And I, and I think I remembered it 
all throughout that time because it's a story also that my mom talked to me about a lot. We talked about that moment. And so whether it's the memory that is actually from that time or it's the memory that I carried with me in all those early years of any time I would struggle, I would remember some of those ideas. Also, there are so many moments where you fail that no one knows about that don't seem like a big deal to anyone else. They would never know about them, whether it's a competition, you know, or there were lots of people that made fun of me being a clarinet player, like when I was a kid. That's another thing that's kind of like, that was a constant in my childhood, in my early years as a musician, being bullied for it, being made fun of. Like this, this happened a lot. And it happened so much that I feel like blocked it out. <laughs> so I've discovered in later years, that's something I do remember. Huh. And you think it was more than the average? Because like, I was called a band nerd, things like that. You certainly are not in the cool part of high school and junior high when you're in band. But you're saying th this went, this clearly went beyond that. Yeah, I think it did, actually. And recently I looked at my eighth grade like autograph book and I had some stuff written in there by quote unquote friends that was not okay. Like not okay at all. And my mom and my parents like thought that it was time for me to leave that school. It was a very good school. But the way she tells the story is that I came home and like my jacket was torn and I was starting to get, get in some trouble. I thought it was just like typical wrestling with people and playing with your friends. But really, I think it was probably like what you would be called today bullying. You know, people trying to like body slam you in the bathroom is probably not normal. I thought it was probably just like, oh, yeah, it's just just playing around with, you know, the other guys in school and stuff. But that kind of stuff was happening. And it's like, that's not actually normal. You were being bullied hard. So some of that is from, you know, clarinet playing. And I was little as well. I didn't join the football team. But um, sometimes when you're living your life, you don't even identify as the thing that people would say are those hardships. Or like, for instance, when you're taking auditions and you're not winning them or you're getting discouraged and getting really upset by that. All those things could have been moments where a lot of us could just say, I'm not doing this anymore. I was just talking to um, all the clarinet students at Juilliard the other day. And I was like, by the way, everybody, if you take two auditions or three auditions and you don't advance, don't stop playing <laughs> the clarinet. And it's a funny thing to say, but it doesn't take 40 failures for you to do that. Sometimes it just takes two or three or four to be like, I'm done with this. Absolutely. So you've been at the New York Philharmonic for eight years now. Here's a couple of facts about you. You're the first black principal player there. You're also the only current black member of the orchestra. How does hearing those facts make you feel? I hear it and I'm like, I can't process it. But when I think about it, it sounds really shocking and surprising. And if I go deeper, it's kind of disturbing. And at the same time, I'm like, oh, that's awesome. I'm really grateful that I have this chance, this opportunity to be this person and play clarinet and be in that role. It's kind of, kind of sad in some way, you know, because you think about the history in our country of segregation and segregation affected, um, it affected the South, it affected the North, it racism affected America. And that affects 
the business of making music, actually, and it's something people don't touch on enough. For instance, the whole concept that when I was growing up, like music was taken out of the schools in the inner city. And that the only reason I'm playing clarinet is because of a program that gave me the opportunity to play music. When Chicago or many cities were majority white, the school system gave that money to educate kids with music and art and everything else. And it flourished. And it flourished. I meet people, my friends all the time, older white people in America that are my close friends. They're like, I can't believe like everyone doesn't have music like we used to. You know, we know all these people. Like we got music in the schools and it's not a coincidence, you know? And if you go deep into all of that stuff, you're like, oh, okay, I see what's going on. And you had separate unions and stuff for black people and white people in, in New York and other cities, big cities, because people weren't allowed, even if you wanted to go join the New York Philharmonic, there's no way you're going to be able to. So the Anthony McGills of that time could not have joined the New York Philharmonic. People just like don't want to talk about that. Hmm. It takes a lot to achieve what you've done as a performing artist and a teacher. And it's a full-time job for anybody just maintaining that. Do you feel an added responsibility being the sole black musician on stage? Not so much because I feel like sometimes it's a burden we carry, a burden that lots of people of color understand in a way that is a part of existence. And so, yes, that can be tiresome, definitely. But that's something that I've known for a very long time before I got to the position that I currently occupy. And so that success, I guess, carries its own responsibilities. It's probably something that my parents instilled in me as well as a responsibility to the community of people that I grew up in who have been categorized by their skin color. So part of that responsibility that I've taken on as kind of a personal mission, which makes it not so much like a burden, not so much like a heavy lift, but that's something that gives me real pride is to try to help others. And I mean, you know, you teach the younger generation too. I've been doing work with programs all over the country and whenever I travel, try to go to schools and do that kind of work. And I've volunteered for different programs that are doing the kind of grassroots work that I started at in Chicago, people gave me an opportunity. They saw promise in me. They saw that with attention and nourishment, kids can do great things. So that's why I do work at the Juilliard School's Music Advancement Program, where we try to reach kids typically underserved by classical music. It's a really amazingly diverse group of kids. We look at the whole family, we look at the resources that they have, we look at where they come from, and most importantly, how much talent they have to grow in music and give them opportunity. And that's what people did for me when I was growing up. So that's not, that's not a burden at all. Right. When you walk into Juilliard, there's this huge poster of you with all the students of the music advancement program. The aim of the program is to turn the tide as to what the student body looks like at places like Juilliard and other performing arts schools. Do you feel like it's working? I have no idea <laughs> if it's working. I can sit here and give you like a huge pitch about how what we're going to do is going to change the face of classical music in 10, 20, 30, 40 years. But it's a hope that kids 
have an opportunity to see someone that looks like them on a stage of a classical music hall by being a representative of what's possible, but also giving them a chance to see, look, I can do anything I want. And so a classical music program isn't going to erase racism. The issue for populating our stages with more diverse people, that's, that's an issue that orchestras have to deal with themselves as organizations. Institutions themselves actually have to deal with, what do we really want? I know everybody wants the best talent. Everybody wants the best performances. But also, if you want orchestras to look differently, then you would actually have to deal with examining how you do that in a really effective way. Things aren't done in isolation. Everybody in their different groups likes to point fingers and say, oh no, it's this part, early education, that's the thing that'll cure the problem. But like I said, this whole concept of prejudice and denial of access to things, it happens on every different level. If I look at my 22 year career, I look at how many people were given a chance that were not black, brown, Asian, female, queer, they weren't given a chance because they were assumed not to be good enough for that opportunity. As we know, there are plenty of conductors that get up in front of us that were definitely not exceptional. <laughs> That's a really nice way to put it, very diplomatic. Yeah. And it's curious, no one ever questions why they were given that opportunity. And so there's this backlash where it's always a harsher critic that comes to play. They're saying, oh, well, we believe in, in equality and everything, but this woman conductor was terrible. Why does she get this opportunity? And it's like, wait a second, horrible male white conductors have been given that opportunity for hundreds of years. So that's the thing that we don't discuss enough. Right. I want to talk about this video you made at the beginning of the pandemic of you alone playing America the Beautiful you leave the end unresolved. You don't play the last notes. And instead of finishing it, you kneel down and you take two knees. It's hauntingly played and very poignant. Can you talk to me about how that video came about and the artistic choices that led to it? Yeah. So at the beginning of the pandemic, I was devastated and depressed like every other musician, every other person possibly in the world about what was going on and had gotten to a point where I was like, just okay with with that just like all right i'm not working as a musician i was comfortable at here at home but when george floyd was killed i like a lot of people were really traumatized by that and i'd taken a couple of days before i'd seen the video and then i finally watched it and it was just i couldn't really describe in words what was going on and how i felt so i woke up one night middle of the night and I started taking writing something about this concept of why people are protesting this. Why are people hurt by this? And I wrote some words about the whole backlash against Black Lives Matters and why there was backlash there. And I was like, well, it's because it doesn't seem like Black Lives have ever mattered. And this is an example of that, like on TV, on our phones, on our computers. And in every way, I was like, there's one reason why that was able to happen. Because in America, for so many of us, black lives don't matter. And it's a, that was a public expression of that. And that's how it felt. 
So I talked about Colin Kaepernick and how he tried to take a knee and people go to the opposite, which is that he's disrespecting the flag. So the concept came because I was sitting out here trying to process my thoughts about this. And then I decided to say, let's take two knees for justice and equality. And part of that came from, honestly, from reading this book by Henry Thames, who was the president of Lincoln Center, called New Power, about how the world has changed so much because individuals have power, much more power than they ever used to. And I was thinking about this as a musician and how to use that. And so that's how the process of making it into like this thing that I could put on the internet that I can invite people to join. If you agree that everyone deserves a chance to live, you can use your power of music to express things that protest in that way is not, not bad, not radical, not anything, but something that we should all be able to get behind. So I challenged the whole world to do that whole classical music world and people stepped up within the day, Lincoln Center, all of these classical organizations started posting things on their sites of association with why Black Lives Matter to their organizations, which they had never, ever done before. And musician friends and colleagues and amateurs and people I didn't know all over the country and the world started placing these videos of Take Two Knees on their own personal pages. And it was really, really powerful because it felt like people heard and felt the pain that a lot of us were experiencing, and maybe for the first time. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Speaking Soundly. Be sure to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. To keep up on future episodes, follow me on Instagram at David Krause Trumpet and go to our website, artfulnarrativesmedia.com, for show notes, links, and information on all of our guests. Tune in next week as we hear another inspiring artist speaking soundly. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.